The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 4. Hello, and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. In the previous episode, we finally caught sight of the ghost whose appearance is so steadily built up over the opening lines and interactions of the play. Our stoic and impartial outsider Horatio, here to be a reasonable observer, has been forced to concede that yes, the strange apparition looks just like the dead king. Now we don't know yet how long ago this king died, or indeed how, but we can assume it's fairly recent. Horatio has given a little political context to the state of Denmark, and he's left with nothing more eloquent than the remark that this situation is strange. Marcellus is eager to consolidate, and he continues explaining just how many times this strange ghost has shown up. Thus, twice before, and jump at this dead hour, with martial stalk hath he gone by our watch. This is just delicious language, isn't it? Jump at this dead hour is is an extremely rich twist of words pointing out how the ghost has appeared like clockwork. And then his martial stalk would appear to be a very clear direction for the actor playing the ghost. Thank you very much, Professor Shakespeare. Shakespeare's way of instructing and helping the actor isn't often as blunt or descriptive as this, because indeed he has a whole arsenal at his disposal. One of the most elastic, rewarding, and I think fascinating of these is the verse itself. At the time that Shakespeare's career began, verse drama was just about figuring itself out in the Elizabethan theatre. The standard verse form was, of course, iambic pentameter, a poetic rhythm that consists of five feet, each with two beats, de-dum, 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 de-dum. If you've ever studied Shakespeare before, of course, you probably have this pounding in your head since. Shakespeare's whole career is an expansive, magnificent dance with this single rhythm, frequently likened to the human heartbeat. It's considered the most natural rhythm for poetry in the English language, and Shakespeare's genius for manipulating it is absolutely unrivaled. One key element of manipulation of the verse that bears noting for the play Hamlet in particular is the feminine ending, or a line that carries an extra syllable. Sometimes this is merely the writer's convenient way of getting an extra word or an extra beat into the line, but sometimes it's a more particular device, allowing Shakespeare, or any other writer, to show us that a character is thinking, is confused, is working out a problem. And of course, the most famous line of the entire play is a much-cited example of this. If you don't know the most famous line of the play, by all means go look it up. It's a testament to Shakespeare's mastery of verse that his most famous and oft-quoted line has indeed a feminine ending. Obviously, we will have much recourse to the feminine ending throughout this play, but here, Shakespeare marks Horatio's bewilderment by giving him two such lines in succession as he tries to put his thoughts in words. In what particular thought to work I know not, but in the gross and scope of my opinion this bodes some strange eruption to our state. The actor playing Horatio has options here. The first line could mean that he himself doesn't know what to think, or which thought to follow, or indeed that he doesn't know what the ghost wants. The gross and scope of his opinion is another rhetorical device that we will see on repeated occasions throughout this play, Shakespeare's here using two images to give one single thought. This juxtaposition of complementary images has the very fancy Greek name hendiadis, 
literally one through two, and there are over 60 such usages throughout the play. I appreciate that's back-to-back descriptions of Shakespeare's writing tools, for which you do have my apologies, but they are very much worth the discussion. What makes this play so rich is as much the drama of the language as the drama of the story and how Shakespeare intertwines the two. So, in the wide survey of his opinion, Horatio knows that this ghost's appearance is very bad news. The eruption to the state of Denmark may be in the future something bad that is coming, or is it something that has already happened? It's a bit of a dun-dun-dun moment. Marcellus is eager for more information and yet again suggests that they sit on this battlement. Why anyone would want to sit on the cold stone at the top of the castle with the threat of a ghost appearing at any moment is beyond me. But the ghost didn't seem too interested in them either, so perhaps they'll be all right to sit and chat for a moment. And Marcellus wants to know why Denmark seems to be preparing for war. Good now, sit down and tell me, he that knows, why this same strict and most observant watch so nightly toils the subject of the land, and why such daily cast of brazen cannon and foreign mart for implements of war? Why such impressive shipwrights, whose sore task does not divide the Sunday from the week? What might be toward that this sweaty haste dost make the night joint labourer with the day? Who is that can inform me? Very often, in Shakespeare, we get rich, meaningful passages like this in the mouths of characters on the fringes of the action. Thus far, Marcellus has had the most to say in this play, but we aren't even a hundred lines in yet, and if Hamlet is a race, poor Marcellus isn't much more than the pacemaker. But he has a great deal to contribute, and this speech gives a very rich feeling of how busily Denmark is preparing for war. He and his colleagues aren't the only ones who watch, in the sense of staying up and working, throughout the night. The whole country is working night and day, seven days a week, with no break for Sundays, preparing with cannons, implements of war bought from abroad, and the building of ships. It feels like a big campaign is imminent, perhaps the eruption that Horatio suspects. Who can tell Marcellus any more? Of course, the answer comes from Horatio. That can I. At least the whisper goes so. Our last king, whose image even but now appeared to us, was, as you know, by Fortinbras of Norway, thereto pricked on by a most emulate pride, dared to the combat, in which our valiant Hamlet, for so this side of our known world esteemed him, did slay this Fortinbras, who, by a sealed compact, well ratified by law and heraldry, did forfeit with his life all those his lands which he stood seized of to the conqueror. Well, Horatio has the information he's about to relay on hearsay, the whisper goes so, but he does display a very secure knowledge of Danish politics and history, and begins what is quite a long speech here with a discussion of the ghostly king's fight against the Norwegian king, Fortinbras. These two are now both dead, Fortinbras of Norway and Hamlet of Denmark. King Hamlet was considered valiant by this side of our known world, Presumably Horatio means Europe here, since the play appeared at a time in history when explorers from Europe were eagerly exploring and plundering what was referred to as the New World. But of course, the known world Horatio describes could just as easily be the world of the living, since now we are dealing with a ghost that has come back from the unknown, which Hamlet will much later call the undiscovered country. The dead King Hamlet 
many years ago, and of course when he was still alive, killed Fortinbras in single combat, to which the latter had challenged him. The king accepted the challenge, and the two swore that the winner would cede his lands to the loser. This compact was ratified by all appropriate measures of either legal or ceremonial custom, the laws and heraldry that Horatio mentions, and so, when Hamlet killed Fortinbras, it went without saying that this transfer of land would go through. It is worth noting, of course, that King Hamlet and King Fortinbras both have sons, and their sons both carry their names. The backstory of the Norwegian battle will become a substantial subplot throughout the play, and indeed the young Hamlet and the young Fortinbras have parallel storylines that reflect and inform one another. Fortinbras is a character invented by Shakespeare, as is his father, and it'll become very clear that he is a foil for Hamlet, something almost like the spur that pricks the sides of his intent. The name is definitely not Norwegian, but in French it means strong-armed. By contrast, the Norse version of the name Hamlet, or Amleth, means mad. There's certainly method to this, which will be a great talking point for us in future episodes. Horatio's speech continues with a description of what is going on with young Fortinbras and his Norwegian army, but that's going to take up the bulk of next week's episode. Thank you for listening, and as ever, you can find show notes and links to previous episodes on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. You can subscribe and download the show from wherever you like to get your podcasts, and I'll be back with the next instalment next Sunday. I hope you'll join me then.